Did you bring a Bible with you tonight? Yeah. Go with me, first of all, to the book of Matthew, and we'll spend a little time in the Word of God and get our lives changed. It'll be fun. Matthew chapter 11. Let's start here, and let's just go where the Lord wants us to go tonight. Matthew chapter 11. I want you to look at something. Beginning in verse 25, it says this, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. What does he say? He said he's re he revealed them. That, what is he talking about? Revelation. Revelation knowledge. When something has been revealed to you, what does it mean? It means the cover has been taken off. Yes. It's like we spoke about a moment ago. It's like the light has come on. And what used to be in the dark is now illuminated. Amen. It's been revealed. Amen. And he says, you've revealed these things to babes. At verse 27, all things have been to, delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus is saying that nobody knows the Father. At that point in time, nobody really knew Him, especially the religious people. They did not know him. Now, they knew a lot about him, but did not know him. They knew a lot about him. Uh, actually, probably as much as anyone could know about something without actually knowing him. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, I know in whom I have believed. Not just I know what I have believed. He says, I know in whom I have believed. Let me take a moment just to say this right here. It would be better for you to be familiar, more familiar with the character of God than you are with, with just, uh, just information about God. Because if you know his character, you'll know what he does. When you know his character, it'll help answer questions about what's going on in your life. This is where people get tripped up. They live life with an understanding of, of God based on tradition. Right. And what is tradition? Tradition is simply something that was handed from one person to another. The moment I give you information and you, be you begin to live based on that information that you got from me, it became tradition. It became tradition. And the reason this is so, so critical is Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you have taken all the power out of the word of God. He says, you made the word of God of no effect by your tradition. When you live just based on what somebody else has said about God, it's tradition. It may have been revelation to them, but if you hear that and say, Pastor Jim said that, so I'm going to do it because it worked for Jim. Then what happens? It's become tradition. Right. Yeah, that's good. Just like that, it became tradition. And this is what we see over and over. We see it in our circles. We see it in, in, throughout the body of Christ at large. They say, ooh, that preacher's rich, or that preacher's prosperous, or that, that one's healthy. I'm going to do what he did. And the moment you do it because he did it, it's tradition. Yeah. 
But when you hear the word and you become illuminated, which is, which is only a work of the Holy Spirit. If you get anything out of this message tonight, it's not because of me. It's because of the indwelling Holy Spirit who turns on the light. And if the light shines and you see something, you're illuminated. You say, ooh, I'm going to apply that. I'm going to do that. It's revelation. It only works when it's revelation. And it's only revelation if you got it from the revealer. Amen? See, we've tried too long to separate revelation from revealer. And if you do that, then really all you're left with is a set of principles, is a, is a set of rules, uh, guidelines, if you will. And we've developed faith in principles rather than faith in a person. We've developed faith for things, haven't we? We've developed faith for healing, faith for relationships, faith for provision. We've developed faith for things. But if you study the Word of God, you study the New Testament, you find that there is no such faith, such, excuse me, such thing as faith for healing without faith in the healer. Faith belongs in. Hope is the expectation for, but faith belongs in. I'm a man of faith. Faith in what? Uh, well, I don't know. Then you're not a man of faith. You're not a woman of faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that only takes place when he's been revealed to you for who he is. And he said, no one knows the father except the son. And no one knows the son except the father. And he said, uh, the second part of that verse, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. Now, if you quit reading which is so often what we're guilty of. We, we, we see something or we, we're familiar with something and we stop right there. Let me encourage you, keep reading, like always. I'm not telling you you have to read the entire Bible every time you open the Bible to read. But if there's something that doesn't make sense or it doesn't sound complete or it doesn't feel finished in you, keep reading. And if you read something that, that, that sounds strange to you, back up. Just put it in the context. That's just a great tool and, and help to studying the Bible. What do you tell a kid who has gotten something off the shelf that's not to be played with or it's fragile or, or it could hurt them? What do you say? Put that back where you found it, right? Put that back where it came from. That's what I'm telling you about some of these scriptures that we've built theology on and we've built tradition on that didn't actually say what we've preached them to say and others have preached them to say. And you know the fix to that? Put it back where you found it. Put it back in the context it belongs in. Read before it, read after it. And Because if, if you just stop right here, it says the only one that knows the Father is the one that the Son wills to reveal Him. So it's like, you can see him, you can see him, you can see him, uh, you can see, and you're just you're leaving people out. That's not what he's saying at all. Keep reading. The one to whom the son wills to reveal him. Verse 28. So come to me. Who's saying this? What color are these words? Red. Who is saying this? Jesus is saying this. Come to me. It's my will to reveal the father to you. Are you with me? Yes. Jesus 
is the visible image of the invisible God. Everything he said was to reveal the will of the Father. Everything he did was to reveal. Take the cover off, man. Rip that, that, that cover right off. Turn the light on and for people to see God for the very first time. People who thought they knew him. People who thought they had him down. People who thought they had him understood. And Jesus ripped the cover off. And they said, who is this? And he said, it's your father. And people were mad at him for that. Why? Because Jesus was one of the first ones, really the first one, that didn't preach based on what Rabbi so-and-so said about what Rabbi so-and-so said about what this guy said a hundred years ago. That's what religion was at that time. Just, just opinion layered on top of opinion, on top of oral tradition, on top of opinion, on top of tradition, and so on and so on. But Jesus was the first one to ever show up and say, my father says. Not, not some other guy, not some other rabbi, not another priest, my father. And they said, quicker what? You're who? Excuse me? And they got mad at him over that. And it will. It'll tick unbelieving people off. People who have a preconceived idea of who God is, when the truth shows up, it tends to make them mad. But you can't be that way. You can't be mad when the truth, when the light comes on. The light didn't do it. The light just showed you what was there. The light didn't put it there. The light didn't create it. It just showed you what was there the whole time. Amen? So it's the will of Jesus to reveal him. How is he going to reveal him? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Now, you've heard this before, but there may be something in this that you haven't seen. And the, the, the real key to this, understanding this, is back up where we began in verse 25, and it says, at that time, Jesus said. Now, I was studying this one day, and I, I have a particular translation that I study out of quite a lot. It's called the Wiest, W-U-E-S-T, expanded translation. And one of the things this translation of the Bible does is it's that very thing. It expands it. It gets into that, that original language and just brings everything out that was in there. And the way that translation reads, like, it reads like this, at that epochal and strategic moment in time. At that epochal and strategic moment. I had to look up epochal. <laughs> E-P-O-C-H-A-L. Epochal. And this is what that word means. Highly significant. Marking the beginning of a new development or a new era. So it wasn't like you know, at 11 o'clock, Jesus said. It wasn't, that, wasn't a reference to like the time of day. It's the reference to a highly significant moment in time. A, a moment in time that marks the beginning of a new development or a new era. A new development or a new era. What was the new development? Rest. The new era, Jesus introduced a new era, a new space, a new age in time. 
A new day, if you will. The day of rest. The day of grace. He said, come to me. I want to start something new. I want to begin something new. Now, here's what you've got to understand about an epochal moment. These aren't necessarily things that happen and take place day after day. These are, these are, you look back across your life and you can pinpoint these moments in time where not just something changed, everything changed. Everything changed. Let me tell you about a couple of epochal moments in my life. One of them, September 1st, 2007, the day I married Sarah. Epochal moment. It started the, new, the development a new beginning, a new era. Now here, here's how you live and exist in one of these kinds of moments. It requires you, let me put it like this, to start a new development, what, what else must you do? End an old one. To start a new one, you have to end an old one. If the old one doesn't end, the new one doesn't begin. And everything that went with the old one has to come to an end. So if that was an epochal moment in my life, the day I got married, then married Jeremy, that was the beginning of this new development, married Jeremy. So single Jeremy, better end. Right? It has to end. And everything that goes along with that. How many of you know there's two separate mindsets? There's the single male mindset, and there's the married male mindset. And if you try to mix those, you're messed up. You are finished. You cannot live, gentlemen. I'm helping somebody right now. You you cannot live as a married man with a single man mindset. I heard a female amen. (laughs) You can't do it. Not successfully. Not successfully. Not with any amount of success or positive results in your life. Everything about that old you had to come to an end. Why? Because something better was about to begin. And that's the other thing that's carried with this. You you, you study Romans chapter 12, uh, the first couple of verses, and and he talks about not being conformed to this world, but being what? Transformed Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed. That that word means don't put on something from the outside that doesn't reflect what's going on inside. Right? Something new took place on the inside. Don't put something on out here that doesn't match that. If you do, that's being conformed but rather be transformed. What does that mean? Let what's taking place inside produce what's taking place outside. That's what it means to be transformed. But the the beautiful thing about the Spirit of God and what he said through Paul there was not just, hey, stop being conformed, be transformed. Stop that, start this, later. No, he said, stop that, start this by the renewing of your mind. That's the how-to. Here's the what to do. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Here's the how to do it. Get your mind renewed. And that word renewed, you study that, it's beautiful. It means renovation, reconstruction. And this is something you and I, you're probably more familiar with it than you realize. This is so big in our culture. 
the concept of a renovation, isn't it? We've built whole television shows, hour-long shows, just on renovation. People will renovate everything, anything. Everything from a house to a car to their body is a renovation. It's a reconstruction. It's a remodel. And, and everybody, even, even in those little things, they re, not just remodel a house, but everything in it. Not just a car, but everything in it. doesn't even look like the same hunk of junk that showed up in there. They tricked it all out, and it's beautiful now, and it flies, it's got wings. I mean, it's been completely remodeled, completely renovated. And people are doing the same things head to toe, yeah. right? Remodeling everything. And I do mean everything. <laughs> we won't get into those details, but Paul said, do that kind of thing to your, to your mind. Yeah, good. Think about one of those programs where they remodel a house. What do they do? They rip out and tear down everything. Anything that won't support what they're about to put in, they rip it out. Anything that's faulty, anything that's rotted out, anything that's got holes in it and will no longer support what they're going to put in, it gets ripped out. And not gingerly, I might add. Not sweetly. That demolition phase is one of the greatest phases to watch. It's not, there's nothing kind about it. It is just rip out what doesn't belong so we can put in what does. And he said, do that to your mind. Rip out ways of thinking traditional ways of thinking, things that you've heard about God that don't line up with his word, rip it out so there's room for the truth. Remodel your mind with the truth. Amen? Do a remodel. Do a reconstruction in your mind. And the thing that goes along with that every time, you never see one of those, one of those shows where they rip apart a, a two-bedroom house that, you know, 42 kids were living in. They never do that and build a smaller one, do they? That'd be disappointing, wouldn't it? You and, and all 57 of you in your family have just been shipped off to Disneyland for a week. Why? Because they're going to remodel your house, man. And you've been living in this tiny little thing for so long now. And, and when you come home, it's going to be completely remodeled. You're gone for a week and you show back up and it's moved there bus and you look and it's smaller than it was <laughs> I cannot think of anything that would be more disappointing for a remodel to go backwards that's not right so remodeling and renovating and renewing always carries with it the idea of ascending going up better than it was before I'm, I'm ripping out an old way of thinking and I'm going to replace it with something that's higher, uh, uh, that, that was better than the way I used to think. You've got to replace tradition with revelation. It won't work if it's tradition. You want to know why there are so many people that have said, I tried faith and it didn't work? It's because they tried what they heard a preacher say, not what they heard the Holy Ghost say. Now, all us preachers can do is preach. Whether or not you listen to the Holy Ghost in it is up to you. Amen? You understanding this so far? Come to me, he said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anytime you see this word give or gift, especially in the New Testament, 
This is what you should think to yourself. Grace is in operation. Grace is in operation. Anytime you see gift, anytime you see give, there are oftentimes the word grace and gift are, are, are the same Greek word, charis, or roots of it, C-H-A-R-I-S. Sometimes it's, this, it's the exact same word. You want to know where we get a charismatic church? What is a charismatic church? It's a church where the gifts of the Spirit are in operation. Charismatic. Charis. Charisma. Do you know what word we get in English from the Greek word charisma? Charisma. It's not a big stretch, is it? Not a long leap. It's charisma. It's a place. It's an atmosphere. It's an environment where the gifts are in operation. Now you go to you can go to First Corinthians, what is it, chapter twelve, and look at the gifts of the Spirit. What had what grace that has come through from God through Jesus to you by His Spirit. That's grace. Anything you see that is a gift, recognize it as what grace. Come on. And we know from John chapter 1 and other places that grace and truth came through Jesus. But let me make this statement to you. Grace is not something that came through Jesus. Grace is everything that came through Jesus. It's not just your salvation and the understanding of it being small in that, okay, I'm saved from hell in eternity and I'm saved to heaven in eternity. That, that's just the very tip of grace. It's not just something that came through Jesus. It's everything that came through Jesus. So anytime you see something that came from God through Jesus to you, you should know immediately grace is in operation. Grace is working in my life. If it's from God, through Jesus, to me, it's grace. And the only way to receive it is by faith. Is by faith. And I absolutely cannot stand this thing that I see in different places in the spirit you kind of pick up on sometimes where you got faith people who say, well, he's, he's really more of a grace preacher. And it's, they say it kind of with that attitude, that, that wrinkled nose, that I'm not saying anything bad. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Be very watchful, not over just what you say, but how you say it. Speaking the truth in love. What, it's not just what you say so much of the time. It's how you say it. He's, he's more of a grace preacher. In other words, well, you know, those things are fine. Well, hey, what are you? If you're not preaching the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you preaching? Well, I'm preaching faith. Faith in what? Well, uh. It's faith in Jesus that gives you all grace provided. And without grace, there's nothing to have faith in. But without faith, there's no way to receive what grace gave. Your whole life is a conversation between grace and faith. Grace said you're loved, just like Sarah ministered to us. And faith, in response to it, says, oh, I just don't feel love. No, that's not a faith response. Faith says, thank you, Lord, I received that. Grace said you're healed. Why? Because healing came from God through Jesus to you. So it's grace. And grace says you're healed. And faith said, thank you, Lord, I received that. Not, not, I don't feel healed. I'm not worthy of your healing. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> the faith response 
the, 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 the response that you take in your conversation between grace and faith is, thank you, I received that. You see how simple that is? Oh, this is about five messages in one. At that epochal moment, the beginning of a new development, the beginning of a new era, the beginning of grace. Jesus began to introduce that, this new way of thinking. And he said, come to me. That's the only way you're going to receive grace. That's the only way you could do it then, and that's the only way you do it now, by coming to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Well, I came to Jesus and got born again. Keep coming. Keep coming and stay there. <laughs> Come to Jesus and stay there. Don't leave his presence. Because it wasn't just by his grace that you're saved from hell in eternity. It's by his grace that you're saved from hell on earth. Amen? Come to me, he said. And he began to introduce this new way of living, this new way of thinking. The old way was you had to work for it. The old way was a burdensome way. Jesus even said it. He said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, that's all they knew about God, is if I want to get there, I better shape up. I better do this right, this right, this right, and about 619 other things right. That was the only way that they knew to come to God. And Jesus said, come to me. Every one of you who are tired of this, every one of you who are beat down with this laborsome way of trying to approach my father, come to me. I got a new way. Come to me. I got a new way of thinking. Lay that aside and take my rest. I give you, I grace you rest. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of thinking. I can't think like a single man anymore. Why? Because I'm a married man. New way of thinking. It was a development. It was a day that marked my life forever. Changed an old way, began a new way. I had another epochal moment in, our, in my life. Sarah and I share this one. Just about six months ago, we had a little baby boy, and his name is Justice James Pearsons. And he was and is nearly every day an epochal moment in our lives. <laughs> I'm telling you, the day that guy showed up. Now, of course, you have nine months to get ready for it, but I don't care. I don't care. Something radically, dramatically changes when you have a baby. Anybody know that? Yeah. If you've had a baby, then you do. If you haven't, then you don't. Why? You haven't experienced that epochal moment yet. Everything changed for Sarah and I. The way we thought, the way we spoke, the way we spent our time. The way we didn't sleep. I mean, all of that change in a moment of time, right? Even with preparation time. I mean, Sarah and I were engaged, not very long, but uh, we were engaged, so there was time to prepare for being married. But there's preparing for it, and then there's just being married. And you, you can't, there's no substitute for it, right? Yes. If you're a parent, and I love how people say, well, we'll start by getting a dog. Okay. <laughs> and I guess maybe that helps a little. I don't know. We didn't have a dog. But all I can tell you is that everything changed. And we can no longer think like people who don't have a kid. We have a kid. That changed. We can never again think as though we don't have one. 
Why? His life depends on us and our new way of thinking and our new approach to life. His life depends on it. It was an epochal moment that changed everything. And the thing that I'm really wanting you to see in this, and I hope, I hope that you are, is that that's what happened here. He changed your way of thinking. And in the same way that I can't mix single guy thinking with married guy living or, or childless marriage can't mix, that thinking can't mix with having a child and raising a child. They just don't, they don't go together. They, they sort of fight each other, don't they? Especially that, that single guy, married guy thing. There's just really so few similarities. Have you found that? There's just really so few things that they mingle with. And, 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 and again, I need to say this. It's because married life is better. I need to make the, Am I making that clear? I just want to make sure I'm making... I need to make that clear. It is so much better. And I don't look back, folks. We don't look back to the way it used to be. And oh, for those days, shut up. You are ignorant if that's what you're... If that's what you're looking back for. So a new way of thinking. And Jesus is introducing a new way of thinking. You cannot think rest and working for it. You can't think resting in him and working for salvation. You can't. Those two ways of thinking don't mix. They fight each other. They cancel each other out. Have you ever... Uh, this used to puzzle me, even up until recently, and, and the Lord really helped me with it. But there was a moment in the Gospels where these guys came to Jesus because his disciples weren't fasting. And they said, why don't your disciples fast? And do you remember what he said to them? He talked to them at first about, you know, the, when the bridegroom's with you, you don't fast, but when he leaves, you will. And which, which I guess is, is an answer. Um, it's always kind of puzzled me a little bit. But what he said after that really threw me for a loop. Does anybody remember this? He said, you don't take a piece of unshrunk cloth and sew it to an old garment, lest the new garment tear away from the old one and they're both ruined. And if I'm the guy that asked Jesus about fasting, I'm thinking... Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Great piece of, you know, home ec advice. Don't, don't sew unwashed garment to old one. Got it. Check. Um, but about that fasting thing? <laughs> but he doesn't stop. He goes on and says, in the very next statement, don't pour new wine into an old wineskin, lest the wineskin burst and the wine is spilled. And again, great advice. If you want to hang on to that wine that you've got and you don't want to spill it, don't pour it in an old wineskin. So, you know, write that down. But Jesus, back to my original question about fasting... And I used to just wonder about that. And uh, finally, I, was, I guess I was reading some commentary on it, and I had been asking the Lord about it, and he pointed me right to the answer. And, he, and this was so clear after I saw this. Jesus was talking about two ways of thinking. 
You have the way of thinking that he introduced this living life by grace, by your faith in him to receive what grace has given. And then there's this old way under an old law, under an old restrictive system that's burdensome and heavy and weighs you down, but you can't do both. Grace is that unshrunk cloth, that new garment that hasn't been worn out, is not tattered, it's not old, it hasn't been through it and and torn up, it's brand new, it's fresh, and it stays that way. And he says, but you cannot attach that to the old way of doing things. They don't mix. They will pull away from each other and tear apart and rip. And they'll both be ruined. That's what happens when you try to mix Resting for it and working, or excuse me, resting in it or working for it. How many of you earned your salvation? Can I see a show of hands? No hands in here tonight. No one earned their salvation. Then why are you trying to earn your healing? Why would you try to earn your prosperity? Why would you try to make a living? You're either resting in it or working for it, but you are not doing both. You can't. And we've understood grace to the limit of, well, we're saved by it. We've put this cap on it. And really what the cap is on is our understanding of salvation. Not realizing that salvation included all that stuff. Not not realizing that you were saved Spirit, soul, and body. I mean, through in and out, you have been born again. And it's now time to live life from that born again spirit, from the inside transformed to the outside. But you cannot rest in your salvation and work for your healing. Two ways of thinking, two ways of approaching God that do not mix. He doesn't even, he doesn't even understand that. He doesn't even speak that language. You approach God and you say, I've done this and I've done this and I've been faithful here and I did all this. And and, and Romans chapter four is very clear about it. He said, if it was by your works, then it would be debt. But it's and if it's debt, then it's not grace, but it is grace. In other words, God is not going to show up at your doorstep one day and say, wow, you've worked so hard. Thank you so much. I'm really proud of you for working. You know what you deserve? You know what I owe you? I owe you some healing. I owe you some prosperity for everything you've done. God is not in debt to you, my friend. And there are people that think he is because of what they've done. But he is not in debt to you. You don't want to get into what you and I actually deserve. That's a subject you don't even want to get into. Just leave the lid on that one, okay? You want to get into what grace has provided. And then you want to get into how to receive it by faith. That's where you want to be. Because God doesn't owe you. It's his gift. Jesus doesn't owe you rest. It's his gift of rest. Amen? Thank you, Lord. He began this new way of thinking. And I want to show you something in closing. Go now to Matthew chapter 13. Just turn the page a little bit. You getting anything out of this so far? Thank you, Lord. I won't take a whole lot of time with this, but I I want you to understand something and begin to study Matthew chapter 13 for yourself. And it's the same thing you see in Mark chapter 4 and you see it in Luke chapter 8. And it's the parable of the sower. It's Jesus' parable of the sower. 
If you look at it, it is one of the most significant portions of Scripture. Even, even Jesus said that. His disciples came to him after he told this parable and said, why, why do you speak in parables? What's the meaning of this? And he looked at them and said, if you don't understand this parable, how then will you understand all parables? So there's a key in this one that will unlock the others. And he begins this parable by saying, behold. Somebody say, behold. behold. Not a word we use too often anymore. Behold. What does it mean? Look, right? Look, I want to show you something. If you and I were out standing outside somewhere and you're looking that direction, I'm looking this direction, and I see something over here that you don't see, what will I say? Behold. Behold, look at this. What does that mean? It means I see something you don't. And when Jesus said, behold, how many of you realize it's, it's, it's at least there's a tiny possibility that maybe Jesus sees something we have yet to see? But it's his will to reveal it. That's what's so good about him. That is what is so good about Jesus. He's a mystery, not hidden from you, hidden for you. He's a mystery hidden for you, not from you. It's his will to reveal. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, and not trying to take up too much time with this, one of the things you need to understand here is that every time you see that word some, some seed, it's a Greek word, A-L-L-O, and it means some of the same kind of seed. So when you're looking at what Jesus said, he said, a sower went out to sow and some seed fell on the wayside. Did that seed reproduce? No. The birds came and devoured it and took it away. Some seed, some of the same kind of seed, so not different seed that fell on the wayside, same seed. Somebody say, same seed. same seed. The same seed fell on stony places. And that doesn't necessarily mean there's a bunch of rocks sitting out there. Stony places means that there was, there was earth there, but it was shallow earth. And that layer of rock was just beneath the earth. And it didn't have enough depth to establish a root. And when it sprang up, it began to produce, but because there was no root, the sun scorched it and it withered away. So did that seed produce? No, it did not. You've got seed on the wayside, did not produce. Some of the same kind of seed fell on stony places. It did not produce. And then he said, some seed fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked them. And they became unfruitful. So this seed has been planted now three times and has yet to produce. Now, if you didn't read that last statement about some seed, some of the same kind of seed fell on good ground and yielded a harvest, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. If you had just stopped right there after the wayside, the stony ground and the thorns, you might think to yourself, something's wrong with this seed. It's been planted three times and has yet to produce. But the moment it produced on that fourth ground, you know nothing wrong with this seed. It is capable of producing. It is capable of yielding a harvest. Now, fast forward, and you'll see this uh, echoed in Mark chapter 4, but Jesus said in verse 18, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. And right there in Mark chapter 4, he says this, The sower 
sows the word. So the seed, the same seed, every time it got planted, it was the word of God. Every time. Now, what do we know about the word? We know that the word of God is alive. It's sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide us under the soul of spirit, the joints and the marrows, the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We know that Jesus is the word made flesh. We know that God has said in, in Psalms that his word is forever settled in heaven. We know from Hebrews that all things are upheld by what? The word of his power. We know that in the word is the ability to save, heal, deliver, set free, recover, redeem, prosper. Amen. Raise from the dead. All of that is in the word. It's inherent in the word of God. And just, just as you would look out and see a tree in full bloom, you know that everything you see on the outside of that tree was first on the inside of that seed. That's the miracle of the seed. Human life is that way. Everything is a seed. And everything you see on the outside began as a seed with all of that in it. And the seed was the word of God. And I know what church you go to. You preach the word here. You preach what the word is capable of doing. That's how I grew up. I grew up in a word family. And that's what we were taught. That's what we heard. But when you start to study this and really look at it honestly, some, you've got to ask yourself, what's going on here? Because if it was the word, then the word got planted four times and only worked once. That's a big statement. It's about as big as Jesus saying to those Pharisees, you have sucked all the power out of the word by your tradition. Now that should really jar your thinking to think that this word with everything that's inherent in it, all that it's able to do, all the power could be drained out of it. Yes, it's possible that the word has been sown and not produced. And there are people, believers, Christians all over the world saying it's not working. Frustrated, thinking it's not, wor it's not working for me. It's not working in my life. It's not working in my family. Then go back to the word and find out why Jesus said it's not working. Because the seed is capable of producing. There is nothing wrong with the seed. Peter said we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, which is the Word of God, he said. So quickly, let's look at, let's look at these three examples, and I won't take time uh, to really get into them, but I want you to see something by the end of this. He said, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. What kept the word from producing there? Didn't understand it. Anyone hears the word the word of the kingdom, the word of God, and doesn't understand it, the wicked one comes. Mark 4 says Satan comes immediately and snatches away the word that was sown in his heart. Without taking too much time, the word understanding means to have a grasp of the meaning, the nature, and the value of something. And if you don't grasp the value of the word of God, if you don't see the word as your answer, your way out, your deliverance, then it can't produce in your life. Come on. 
If you, when you hear the word of God and you hear a message from your pastor that you sit there and you think, this passage again, this scripture again, I've heard this before, immediately you have devalued the word and you have been completely robbed of its opportunity to reproduce in your life. That's what it means to not have an understanding of it. It's valuable. Notice what happens to, to this word when it's not treated as valuable. Satan comes and steals it. What happens to valuable things that are left unprotected? They're stolen. They're stolen. This is why the word's not working. No honor. No honor for it. I've heard this before. I've heard this before. Yeah, I know that, but... You've got a situation, somebody comes to you with an answer. God spoke to somebody else on your behalf, got them out of their comfort zone, made them sweat bullets just because he inspired them to come give you an answer. And they sweated over it and they weren't sure and they were nervous about it, but they got out of their little, their little comfort area and came and ministered that word to you. And you said, yeah, I've heard that, but here's what I'm dealing with. And you put your situation on the same level with the answer. And you exalted your circumstances above the answer. Immediately, it can't work. It can't work. So what happens when you don't understand it, when you don't value it? He who received the seed, what was the seed? Somebody help? The word. On stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. Have we not already talked about this? He received it with joy, but didn't endure. Yeah. That means he sat in service and said, oh, this is good, this is good, this is good. But he got outside, and what happened? Persecution arose for the word's sake. So he heard some good things about God, but then he heard some bad things about God. And he thought, oh, what I heard in here doesn't match what I'm hearing out here. And again, didn't value it. But notice this. He said he doesn't have a root in himself. What does Ephesians chapter 3 say? That you and I are to be rooted and grounded in love. There's so much to this, but let me say it quickly. If you don't know how much you're loved, then the Word of God can't work for you. If you don't hear Scripture coming from the God who is love, then it can't work. If you don't have a revelation, if the cover, if the blanket has not yet been lifted off the thing called the love of God in your life. And it's just this, you know, we can never understand how much God loves. Paul said that you would comprehend it, that you'd be rooted in it, grounded in it, comprehend with all the saints, the width, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of Christ. It is a lie from Satan that has just crept into the church and the body of Christ for generations that says, well, we could never really understand the love of God. And because people have said that, others have quit trying. And yeah, maybe you don't know everything about the love of God right now, but you should know more today than you did yesterday and more tomorrow than you did today. Always going up, always renewing, always increasing in a revelation of how much you are loved. And if you've got persecution and tribulation, which Jesus said has come to rob the word, if you don't have a revelation of if my God be for me, tell me who can be against me. If there's no revelation of it, you'll just say, I've heard that verse before. But it's really uncomfortable what they're saying. And somebody comes along and the spirit of God quickens in you and says, your God is for you. Yeah, I know, but let me, let's be real. I am being real. 
I'm not really a faith person. I'm more of a realist. Hey, I'm a realist too. I'm just living in a different reality than you are. This is more real to me. My God is for me is more real to me than those who are against me. And because of that, because that's my root, persecution and tribulation can't rob me of the effect of the Word of God. Amen? But here's what I want you to see as we, as we begin to close. Sarah, if you're around, come on up. Here's what I want you to see. Now, he who receives seed among thorns is he who hears the Word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. Mark chapter 4 adds the desire or lust for other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus said the seed was sown among thorns. Again, not just a bunch of thorns sitting out on top of the ground. Listen to me. Not just thorns sitting up out there. Everything's a seed. Thorns begin as a seed. So what's he saying? He's saying there was seed already in that ground. And there were thorns. And what did he identify as the thorns? The cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and lust for other things, desire for other things. Here's how I would say those things to you. Cares of this world, what am I going to do? Isn't that how we would describe the cares of this world? What am I going to do? Deceitfulness of riches. I got to make a living. I have to make a living. I ha if I want to have nice things, I have to make, I have to make a living. The desire for other things, whatever I have to do to have that, that'll make me happy. What do I have to do to have that? I want that. I want that. What am I going to do? Cares of this world. I got to make a living. Deceitfulness of riches. What do I have to do to have that? Lust for other things. And notice what Jesus called them. What did he call them? Thorns. They're thorns. A thorn is something that, I, I asked a friend of mine about this one time. He's a man who's is been involved in the agriculture business for a long time, uh, uh, land maintenance and, and, and commercial property. I called him one day. I said, I want you to talk to me about thorns. He said, Jeremy, it's so funny you call. I'm out walking around a big piece of land right now, and I'm staring at all these thorns that have just grown up. And you know what? They just happen. It's not like somebody goes and buys thorn seed. It's not like, oh, you know what this little area right by the front door needs? Thorns. Just some thorns. They look so nice. Are they in season? No, nobody goes and buys thorn seed. But it begins as a seed, and it's something that the earth itself very naturally produces. Without anybody trying, it just does it. You go back to the first place thorns ever showed up. Genesis chapter 3, man had sinned, and God said, because to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have done this thing that I told you not to do, he said, the earth will bring forth for you thorns and thistles. It's going to do it all by itself. The earth is going to produce thorns. And he said, you will toil you will eat the, the, the herb of the field, but because of the thorns, you will toil. What? You'll work for it. It'll be on you. And he made this statement to him. If you're going to eat bread, it will be by the sweat of your brow. 
Don't you know Adam looked at God and said, what's sweat? What's sweat? It's a new way of thinking. It had ended that era that he had lived with God in, and it began a new one. It began a new way of thinking. Instead of everything just being provided for him, he was going to have to work for it. And those thorns that very naturally came from the ground were going to make him sweat to eat bread. Oh, but you fast forward. And you come to Jesus. And what did he do? He changed your way of thinking. What am I going to do? I got to make a living. What do I do to have that? These are all natural ways of thinking that, are, that just come with life as a human. This is just the way the world thinks. Without trying, worry just happens for them. It just happens. Just like thorns just, just happen out of the ground. Worry and being consumed with what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? It just happens. But Jesus said the seed of the word cannot share ground with these thorns. I'll say it to you like this. The seed of the grace of God, just as it will not as a new garment attach itself to an old one, the seed of resting will not share the same ground as you worrying about what you're going to do. It's a thorn. It's a thorn. The Lord spoke to me and said, Jeremy, those thorns represent man's effort to work for his living. And I'll not share my grace with that ground. Those thorns, they, they choke the word of God. And yet man has become such a proficient worrier that he has said, whatever I do to make a living, he works for it, he sweats for it, in toil he tries to earn it, and when he does, he wears it like a crown. And to him, it's so beautiful because this is what I work for. I earned this. I made this. And to him, it's a beautiful crown. But what he doesn't realize is it's a crown of thorns. When you take everything that you earn and everything you've sweat for and everything you've worked for and you put it all together, you know what it amounts to? A crown of thorns. And man, in his foolishness and in his pride, wears that crown of thorns, not knowing that it was already born for him. You sweating for it and working for it, those days are over. When Jesus sweat blood in the garden before the cross, he ended that era in your life and he began a new one it was called the day of grace it's called the day of rest but you cannot think rest and earn at the same time that's a those are two two different seeds that won't share the same ground so what is good ground what ground can the word of God produce in 
Somebody who will value his word and honor it above everything else. Somebody who knows how much they're loved. And somebody who's quit working for it and began to rest in it. Somebody who looks to Jesus and the, thing that they, the, the, the things that they do in this life, they do out of assignment and Holy Spirit direction. I'm not telling you lazy. You understand that, right? I'm not talking to you about laziness. I'm talking to you about being Holy Ghost inspired in everything that you do. Throwing yourself into your ministry. Throwing yourself into your assignment. And yes, I know that that is very hard work. But what is the difference between that hard work and trying to earn it? The difference is I know what's at the end of this road and it's pulling me towards it. Amen? Stand up on your feet.